All right, my friends, well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Uh, we are entering into uh, what would be a section of, of a summary uh, here, uh, kind of him looking back on the chapters that have preceded it. Uh, but as we begin, let me just start with this question. Um, you know, we all have things in our lives that we need removed, don't we? Things in our lives that shouldn't be there, we've recognized, or they're in the way that, that need to be removed. And I, I'm just going to give you a very practical picture uh, of that in my life. And, uh, you know, I can't remember what illustrations I've shared at this point. The pandemic's kind of erased my hard drive. I know I've talked about my bathrooms way more than you ever want to hear with their remodeling, but I'm going to do it one more time and hopefully not forget that I did this this one more time. But um, so in the first bathroom, so I know I shared with you the air hammer and the tile and and all the crazy there. Well, the first one had this thing called a bathtub in it, uh, and it was a cast iron uh, bathtub that needed to be removed. And so me and my friend Nick, we were like, okay, we got this. We can like basically put this thing on our back and carry it down the stairs and whatnot. But I don't know if you've ever felt a cast iron bathtub. Um, 400 pounds more. Uh, and so, you know, as strong as I think uh, I am, or he thought he was, I think we came to the, the to the decision that if we were to try to move it, it would more move us in bad ways. And so we're like, okay, we'll get an air hammer, right? The air hammer that broke apart all the tile and the wet bed on the walls. Well, uh, we took it to this tub saying, surely this little mini jackhammer will destroy the tub. It didn't even dent the thing. Like, it was crazy. And so we finally went back to the all-knowing YouTube and, um, and, and looked up how to do it. And it said a sledgehammer. So uh, we grabbed a really heavy sledgehammer and uh, my friend kind of took cover downstairs and I just swung away and we safety goggles on, right? Um, and we whacked this thing and, and it was one of the most satisfying moments of my life <laughs> because this cast iron tub cracked like an egg. I was just like, woo! It was, it was amazing. Now, I will say I would do it differently next time because the shrapnel was deadly. And I'm not even kidding with that. You know, put a blanket over it, uh, Kevlar vest, things like that. It's dangerous. But but it was amazing. And, and that's what was needed to move this thing that needed to be moved. Well, as I said before, chapter 9 is a summary of everything that the preacher, Kaheleth, has been teaching so far. In fact, it begins with this. It says, all of this, meaning everything that has preceded it, I lay to heart examining it all. And so here's what he's talking about as he's referring to it all. What he's been demonstrating at this point is that we have this desire to aspire to have it all or to know it all or to never be left scratching our heads, to be remembered for all time and and to find meaning under the sun. He's tried to do it with things like pleasure, and relationships, and wisdom, and work, and right versus wrong living, and authority. And the word that keeps coming up, that came up at the very outset of this book, continues to be before us where he says, it is all vanity. Vanity. Chasing after the wind. You see, friends, what he's held to this point, and what he will continue to hold to the end, is that we cannot find our meaning or our answers to life under the sun. In fact, do you know what we're going to find under the sun? We're going to find only hammers that break us of that mirage. Now, where this is headed today, and this is just kind of a spoiler alert, but we're going to be headed towards verse 7, where he says, Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. 
And so he's actually pushing us, and and the answer to this question of looking at kind of these hammers that might break us is saying, hey, how are they going to break us and point us towards how we should then live? Eventually he's going to take us to this picture of actually enjoying God's gift, but we'll get there in a moment. Before we get there, and here's the simple outline for today, we're going to look at three hammers and a gift. We're going to look at three hammers and a gift. And so first, let's look at this first hammer in verses 2 to 6. And this is really one of the first things that God really uses as a tool, as a hammer, to dislodge the places where we might find meaning and and, and it's death. Now, friends, I've got to be honest with you. I'm kind of tired of talking about death uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, but uh, it's what is before us in this book. And I also want to name to you that I, I'm prayerfully going into this time because we have been in a season of death, not only that is near to us, but really over the last four years. And so I'm praying that the Lord will wisely guide us through this as we talk about this topic yet again. But again, if you have your Bibles, let's look at verses 2 to 6. Sorry, I'll let you get it back there, Joe. Here's what he writes. He says, it's the same for all. Since man does not know, uh, sorry, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does sacrifice. As the good, uh, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and the madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. For they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. All right, so, so let's look at this first hammer of death. What is he saying here? Well, first of all, he says in verse 2, death comes to us all. And he gives categories, doesn't he? He's saying it's, it's basically to those who live life rightly, the one who keeps oath, and then the ones who lie. The ones who live well and the ones who are wicked. Everyone ends up in the same place. That's what it says in verse 3, or at least ends up facing death. Verse 3, he says something interesting. He says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. It's the cry of every single one of our hearts, isn't it? Especially when we see one who we would call wicked, living a a long life, and those who we would say are living a good life, or or even following after Jesus, they die young. And, And that feels wrong. It feels evil. And that's a good instinct. Death is not the way it should be. In fact, this is good theology. It's the reminder that every memorial service, every coffin is a reminder that the world is broken and fallen and is under the curse of death because of sin. And every single one of us is a part of it. Now he changes gear a little bit, and he says in 4 to 6, he said, but hey, there's still hope. It's not all fatalistic, at least as long as we're living, right? And he has a very short view here, at least in this passage. He compares 
a living dog to a dead lion, and he's saying the living dog is better off. A dog back then is considered a scavenger. They weren't like today where they have like more value than humans sometimes, right? A lion is the powerful one, the hunter. But he's saying a living scavenger is better than a dead lion. It's the point he's trying to make. And the bottom line that he kind of circles is that eventually there will still be a time in verse 6 where every one of our strongest passions or emotions, desires, will grow cold. and We can't help it. And ultimately, at least from a human standpoint, we will all be, to some measure, forgotten. Again, it's another pick-me-up, isn't it? Here's what the preacher is pointing us to, I think, especially as we look at the broader scope of Scripture, is that we can really see death in one of two ways. One way is it's something to conquer, right? And as we elevate our lives to find meaning in it, what he's saying is, is this is when death will become the hammer, as we feel like we can conquer death so that we can pursue life. The second way to view it, and I think it's the way that the rest of Scripture points us to, is to actually embrace death as something that has been conquered. Let's talk about the something to conquer first. And, and I'm going to go back to 2007, and it's, uh, it's the time where my father passed away. He had a surgery that he needed to save his life, and uh, the doctors of the University of Virginia made it clear that there was a 25% chance that he wouldn't survive it, right? And that's not good odds, by the way, if you're going into a medical procedure. And so uh, we were concerned, we were praying over the course of this week, uh, one of my best friends who worked at the University of Virginia Medical Center called me and he said, hey, good news, and I want to encourage you with this. One of the kind of unspoken mottos of uh, the hospital is we're never going to lose someone in the middle of surgery. Like that is just one of the main aims and focal points that they have. And he's like, so rest assured. And I was kind of like, ugh. That, I'm not sure that was super comforting to me. And that played itself out later on that week where he actually did go into surgery and he did not uh, survive. And what ended up happening was after 13 hours of surgery, the doctor uh, came and called my wife and I out uh, of the waiting room, and he just looked at us, and he just said, hey, and I'm not going to go into detail, but he basically said, your dad's not doing well. There are long-term effects that he's probably uh, going to have if he survives. And we've given him three doses of this medicine that costs $30,000 a dose. And it's never failed in clinical trial to do the thing we need it to do. But it's not worrying, but we're going to keep giving him more. And I'm going to save your dad. And friends, I, I believe this man's heart is good, right? He is trying to uh, do the most good for him. But in that moment, this thought hit me. And these are complex moments to navigate. But I just felt like the Spirit wanted me to just kind of let him off the hook. And I looked at him and I just said, Doctor, I so appreciate what you're doing for my dad. But let me just encourage you that you're not God and his life is not in your hands. Do the best you can, but relieve yourself of the pressure because he's in God's hands and he actually knows God because of his relationship with Jesus. And if he does not make it, he will be in the presence of his Savior. Now, this guy was the head of the cardiac unit of the whole University of Virginia. And he collapsed against the wall. And he said, I've never heard that before. Thank you. I'm going to go save your dad. He went back in, and that didn't happen. My dad did pass into the presence of his Savior. But the most profound moment was three days later. We're cleaning out my dad's apartment. 
I get a phone call. I don't know how this dude chased down my cell phone number. But he said, I just can't shake our conversation. It was the surgeon. And he just said, I've just never heard that before. Can you tell me more? We talked about his dad and his relationship with him, who he had just recently lost. We shared the gospel again. We sent him Christmas cards for a number of years afterwards. You know, this man's instinct was good. The death is not the way that it should be. But in a way, death also acted as a hammer for him where he felt like it is something that he can defeat. Here's the other side of that. The perspective that death has been conquered. A friend of mine reminded me or or shared with me the story of the early Methodists, how they were known to have good deaths. Charles Wesley's doctor came to him at one point and he said, most people die for fear of dying, meaning death itself scares them to death. He said, but I've never met with such people as yours. They are none of them afraid of death, but are calm and patient and resigned to the last. I think they were living out what we see in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality when they place their faith in Jesus. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel not only impacts our eternity, but it impacts our living and our dying well. David Gibson, author of the book Living Life Backwards, says this, He says, God comes to us in Jesus and says, trust me, walk with me, love me, put your hand in my hand, believe my word, stop trying to understand everything, to be in control of everything, to tie up all the loose ends, to have perfect peace and wealth and health and happiness. Stop striving for all of those things. Stop it now. If you can't see that life doesn't always make sense, then something is coming your way that will drive it to you. Death is coming. And so, friends, as it comes, here's the question. As that hammer of death approaches, do you live as if it's something that you need to conquer? Or are we able by faith in the gospel to live as if it is something that has been conquered? Here's the second hammer. It's chance. Verses 11 and 12, pick back up with me. It says this. He says, again, I saw under the sun... The race is not won by the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor with those who have knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, or like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So you see that word that he says there in 11 but time and chance happen to them all. So here's the second hammer. There's this idea of of chance that happens. Now, we can think of chance of one of two ways. It's just this blind luck where, you know, everything is just a big mess happening for no apparent reason, right? But I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew word, it can also be interpreted, but a time and a happening happens to them all. No translator is going to say there's a happening that happens, right? And so I think they made that interpretive move of chance, and we'll show a little bit later about how our belief in God influences how we view even the random-seeming things that happen in our lives. But, but he is saying, hey, yes, nine times out of ten, the fastest will win the race and the strongest will win the battle. 
The hardest workers or the most knowledgeable or intelligent may make the most money. Man, there's always those times where it's just not going to work out that way. The examples he gives is a fish swimming into a net and a bird being snagged uh, by someone who was in wait to trap them. You know, the picture of the net when I go visit my mom or driving across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, you'll see these little sticks sticking out of the water, and, and sometimes they're posts from piers that they just leave and, and let go away. But, but honestly, the skinnier ones is usually something called a pound net. It's something that boats will come and they'll pound into the sand there where fish typically follow the shoreline to feed and they'll string a net across, and they'll come once a week to collect whatever's uh, swam, in, swam into it. And essentially, it's this reality of, hey, the fastest fish may get a lot of the food, but he might swim right into a net that he doesn't see. The most beautiful bird may land, and everybody's looking at it, and then a trapper will trap it. And it's just this reality that stuff happens, right? It doesn't always work out the way that it should. That's why David Tyree, this unknown wide receiver for the New York football giant, pinned some terrible pass to his helmet and beat the undefeated New England Patriots, right? Some of you are like, yay, right? An Olympian who for four years was the best in their sport, didn't get injured, was supposed to compete in 2020, then got hurt, and the Olympic dreams end. That's why a hippie named Steve Jobs somehow got a break after break after break and started this thing called Apple Computers, right? And then it all falls apart as he lost his life. That's not the way it should be. It's why a scrap of intelligence can wash up on a shoreline and change the direction of an entire war. Or wildfires could ruin your vacation. Guy Raz, the host of one of my favorite podcasts, How I Built This, about interviewing entrepreneurs, he acknowledges what all of us would acknowledge, that these happenings do happen when he ends every single episode asking these entrepreneurs, hey, what do you attribute your success, success to? Is it your hard work and your intelligence, or is it luck? He asks it every single episode. And it is just a fascinating study to listen to how we process the chance of life. And they always give a nod to both. Always. So there's two ways to approach chance, or the hammer of chance. One is what we would call arrogance, and James 4 talks about this. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are but a vanity mist of vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast is in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So as we approach this hammer, there's one way to approach it with arrogance, right? It's either ignoring the happenings of the world uh, that, you know, I got this. I'm in control. Pretty arrogant. There's also this crazy form of control that we call karma, which is this idea of cause and effect that good deeds and intent lead to uh, good, uh, good deeds and outcomes, hopefully. But even if we spend 10 minutes evaluating our heart honestly, we recognize that that's actually an impossible thing to keep up, that what might be coming our way is far worse than we ever imagined. And so an arrogant approach to this hammer will probably leave us neurotic, anxious, and despairing. Or, there's a humility. If the Lord wills. And friends, if we open-handedly trust in God's providence, coupled with His nature, His demonstration of His love and care for us, and 
sending His Son and the Holy Spirit, there's rest and there's peace, even when the happenings don't go our way. Here's a third hammer. Fickle people. Fickle people, verses 13 to 16. He says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Surely this person's a hero, right? Yet no one remembered the poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. So it's this picture of this poor man, so a great nation coming against a little city. Surely they're going to run him over. This poor man offered wisdom. They listen, they defeat the major city, and they forgot about it. And in fact, at some point, the wisdom was despised. We may read this and go, ah, oh, this is a, a view of wisdom that we need to embrace, and this is a parable to really help us live a better life. And, and I think Derek Kidner corrects us here, and he says, this parable is not a moral tale to show what people should do. It's a cautionary tale to show what people are like. If we identify with anyone, it should be the poor wise man. We should learn not to count on anything as fleeting as public gratitude. People-pleasing is a trap. It will be a hammer if that's where we build our lives that will dislodge our belief that we can find meaning in that. Talk to any leader over the last two years. School districts, pastors, presidents, governors. Great decision! You're a fool, right? Next day. Or... Take the example from this last week. You remember 25 years ago, Carrie Strug, Bella Caroli, 1996, I think, Olympics. Carrie was injured, gutted it out, landed the vault, won the gold. She was a hero. I was even telling my kids even before the Olympics. That was one of the greatest moments in Olympic history. Simone Biles this week rightfully, and I think in, in a healthy way, demonstrated the importance of mental health, just like physical health, and pulled herself out of the competition. And you know what happened? There became this looking back on history in that moment with Bella Caroli and Carrie Strug. And you know what most in social media have said, or many? That was a horrible moment in our history. How dare he demand that of his athlete? She was just a commodity. Friends, I'm not making a qualitative statement at all. But what I'm saying is, 25 years ago it was a heroic moment. Now it's depicted by many as one of the worst moments in Olympic history. And at the very least, it shows us that people are fickle. We change like the wind. Reputation is one of the most fleeting gods there is. Here's the last point. I'll be brief. It's this idea of gifts. Gifts. How, how then do we live, preacher? What are you showing us? Well, here's what he says in 7 to 10. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a, married, with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. And in your toil, at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. 
For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And so he's trying to answer the question, okay, then how do we live? And very simply, he's saying, enjoy the gifts you have in this moment. Here's some of the gifts that he talks about. First of all, there's an imperative here in verse 7. He says, go. We've read this before. Go and eat your good food if you have it and drink the wine if you have it. But there's never been an imperative. Here he's saying, go and do this. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. And I say gifts because in 7 he says, these are the things that God has approved you to have. And then in 9 he says, this is something God has given to you. In verse 8 he says, hey, your, your, your white garments and the oil on your head, that is a picture of, of rejoicing. It's the opposite of when people mourn and repent. They put on sackcloth and ashes. And he's saying, no, in this moment, don't live for tomorrow, right now, live and be grateful for the gifts that I've given to you. Celebrate them. That needs to be a part of our Christian theology. Is eating a good steak if we can afford it and drinking a good glass of wine if we can afford it. In the moment, if it's a gift. He also paints the picture of enjoying our spouses. Now friends, let me just name, and I know for some of you who uh, you are not married, you read this and you go, oh, God's an exclusivist. He's not trying to exclude you, I promise. He's giving a, an example of a common relationship that we have where he's saying, hey, enjoy this type of relationship. And so friends here, and I am going to say this to my friends who are married, he says actually go and enjoy your spouse. He doesn't say, go put up with your spouse. And I just say that because I think we're living increasingly in a culture where we're just simply putting up with our spouse. We're too busy to enjoy one another. Our kids have become our God, and we haven't made eye contact with one another as a married couple in decades. I think we need to change our lives if we find ourselves in that place because God is saying, this is a good gift I want you to enjoy. In verse 10, he says, hey, whatever you can find to do to work, work hard. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., he says, if a lot falls on you in life to be a street sweeper, sweep as Michelangelo painted paintings with all your might and for his glory. But we can all only do this if we view these gifts as what he's calling them, gifts, and not God's. If we're finding our meaning and our identity in them, they too will become a hammer. Gibson says, in the created world, you can only enjoy what you do not worship. If we find meaning in something, it becomes our God and something we worship. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves says, natural loves are allowed to become gods that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They're still called so, but can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. Let me end with this kind of companion passage as we consider these gifts and and how we treat them. Acts 17, Paul is walking through Athens. He approaches the Oropagus where the philosophers are talking and they're trying to figure out God or deity and, and whatnot. And they say, come talk to us, Paul. And he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives, there's the gift giver, to all mankind, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on earth, or to live on the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling. So it is not indeed sheer chance. Now listen to the why. Why the gifts? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Friends, soon thereafter, he says, this God who you call an unknown God is actually knowable, and his name is Jesus. He is the gift giver who faced death, who faced the happenings of the world, who faced fickle people, disciples who denied him at the end, and people who yelled Hosanna and then crucify him a week later. Saying he is the gift giver. He's drawing you to himself. And do you know Wine, meat, white garments. Do you know what type of language that is? It's a wedding. He's pulling them towards Luke 14 where Jesus says there is a wedding feast at the end. In Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we see glimpses of eternity in our lives today. Part of the reason he tells us to enjoy it, he says this is a shadow of what is to come. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis says, every rock and flower and bald of grass, looks as if it meant more. And so at the end, when we face the hammers of life, we may actually feel like the tub, right? But I think God wants us to pull the camera back and say, no, you're the bathroom. The tub is just something I need to remove so that you can find me. So that you can feel your way to me. So that you may find your meaning in me. You see, the, the hammers are not meant to harm us, but to dislodge our misplaced hope and misplaced meaning and to cause us to search for and yearn for the gift giver himself and in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, a hundred times this week and in the weeks prior, I have found over and over again where I place my hope and my meaning in something that if I were to truly worship it, it would destroy me. And Father, I, I believe that every single one of us finds ourselves there on a regular basis. Lord, would you remove those things that we put our false hope in? And would you open our eyes to see these gifts that you have given us, the good things in our lives, even if there aren't many, what few there might be, as something of a breadcrumb that leads us to find you, that you are not far off. Jesus, help our hearts get there. We pray these things in your name. Amen.